Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 49, the book of Matthew, chapter 13, the second continuation. So, do you want to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like? Well, if you're a believer, you ought to. Isn't that what it's all about? And assuming you are believers in the God of Israel and His Son, Yeshua, then, then little is more important in our faith journey than to pursue this understanding. In Matthew chapter 13, we are in the midst of several parables whose purpose it is to help those listening to Yeshua to comprehend exactly that. Now, I, I, I suppose a reasonable question um, might be, why was this even necessary? I mean, why wouldn't have the Jewish people already had a knowledge of the Kingdom of Heaven? I mean, after all, this concept was woven all throughout the ancient Hebrew faith, and the Torah, and the Prophets, and the Psalms, and, and the Old Testament in general. Even the Son of Man concept with the Son of Man, Jesus, being ruler over the Kingdom of Heaven on Earth, goes back to times before Daniel, Psalm 8, for example. Therefore, just like for those first century Jews, if we are to fathom the Kingdom of Heaven, we must first understand its history. Now, I spoke to you last week about a premise of the Kingdom of Heaven that, that, that may have caught some of you off guard. It is essentially that since the fall from grace of, of Adam and Eve, planet Earth became Satan's kingdom. And I gave you a handful of Bible verses to back up that premise. Therefore, when the kingdom of heaven was inaugurated on Earth upon the work of John the Baptist and of, upon Christ beginning His short three-year ministry, it was a heavenly kingdom that was born within a kingdom of evil that had existed for a very long time. I'm going to put it in another way. The banner of the kingdom of heaven was planted within the well-guarded territory of the kingdom of Satan. Now, for the sake of simplicity, we could say that the fall that prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, the earth was indeed part of the kingdom of heaven. God had even established a place to dwell for himself called the Garden of Eden. The fall interrupted the immeasurable blessing and shalom that God had bestowed upon the earth and all the universe for that matter. And as a consequence, essentially, God and the Kingdom of Heaven withdrew from the physical earth and would exist only in the spiritual heaven. That is, God had His original creative purposes for earth put on hold. When as a result of Satan's deception, the first couple put their trust in Satan rather than in their Creator. To say it more plainly, from Adam's fall until Jesus, the Kingdom of Heaven existed only in Heaven. When it returned, it would begin again in a most inconspicuous way. Thus, one of Christ's most used illustrations and metaphors appropriately revolves around the word seed. Seed. That is, the kingdom of heaven was replanted on planet Earth as but a small seed in a vast foreign field possessed by the opposition. 
Now, I want to be clear by saying it's not that God ceased being the ultimate ruler over His creation for a time. God has been ultimately sovereign throughout all the ages. He only ceded rulership over this planet to Satan to an extent and for a time as He carries out a plan to redeem it and to redeem us. And that plan is Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. And since up to the time of Yeshua, the Kingdom of Heaven had not been present on planet Earth, the Jewish people, all humanity, needed to understand what it is. And the first thing to understand is that it is the physical shadow of the spiritual heaven. In the Old Testament, the concept of kings and, and kingdoms are central, especially the kings and kingdom of Israel. Now, with Gentile kings and kingdoms, we get a pattern of what Satan's kingdom is like. With the Hebrew kings and kingdom, we get a rough conceptual idea of what the kingdom of heaven is like. However, since all kings and all kingdoms are far from pure or entirely upright, then they're full of flaws that's not going to exist when the kingdom of heaven on earth has matured into its final form. Thus, the comparison between earthly kings and kingdoms, both Gentile and Hebrew, and the kingdom of heaven, that can only be taken so far. How does somebody communicate this difference? The perfect means for Jesus to tell people about the kingdom of heaven is in parables, which are by their nature structured for the purpose of making comparisons using short stories. It's what they do. Each parable with but a single moral or point to be made, just one. Now, it's within this critical understanding that from Yeshua's perspective, He is the divine invader of an evil kingdom, Satan's kingdom, planet Earth. This is how we must approach all of our understanding about the meaning of His parables. It also puts us on notice that while in no way are His parables intended as fables or unfathomable mysteries or, or, or even simple riddles, their deeper meaning could and, and apparently usually did escape His listeners, including at times His own disciples. Why? Because the parables were about something, Kingdom of Heaven, the Jewish people were generally ignorant of. It was not something that they could see, they couldn't touch it. While there were some similarities between earthly kingdoms and God's kingdom, there were more and greater dissimilarities. So the first century folks should not think that God's kingdom would eventually look just like the common earthly kingdoms, nor would its growth and its aim occur in the manner of earthly kings. In other words, the Kingdom of Heaven represented a new dynamic that was and remains most difficult for humans to comprehend. Well, having begun his first teaching at the lake, that particular Shabbat with the parable of the four soils, Christ, after explaining its deeper meaning to His disciples, then quickly moved on, in verse 24, to yet another parable about the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, He will in a few verses also explain this parable. This next parable, the the parable of the tares or of the weeds, adds another element to aid in understanding the nature of God's Kingdom of the Kingdom of Heaven. Let's reread some of Matthew chapter 13. Open your Bibles, please, and follow along. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start at verse 24 and go to verse 
43. 24 to 43. Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and but while people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads of grain, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. And the servants asked him, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? But he said, No, because if you pull up the weeds, you might uproot some of the wheat at the same time. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first and tie them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man takes and sows in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows up, it is larger than any garden plant, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds flying about come and nest in its branches. And he told them yet another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with a bushel of flour, then waited until the whole batch of dough rose. All of these things Yeshua said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without using a parable. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will say what has been hidden since the creation of the universe. Well, then He left the crowds and He went into the house. His Talmudim, his disciples, approached him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the people who belong to the kingdom, and the weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the adversary. The harvest is at the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels. They will collect out of His kingdom all the things that cause people to sin, all the people who are far from Torah. And they will throw them into a fiery furnace where people will wail and grind their teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So to review, the first thing that Yeshua taught about the kingdom of heaven in the parable of the four soils is that the benefits of it and the membership to it all depends upon the hear of the message of its arrival. Depends on us. Depends on you. There are different types of hearers, different types of people, who respond to the message of the Kingdom's advent differently. In Christ's parable, only one of the four types of hearers responds successfully enough to become a member of the Kingdom, the one that is good fertile soil. That is, the one who understands the message and acts upon it and produces good fruit. So, with the parable of the tares, another element to understanding the Kingdom of Heaven is given. Then follows two more short parables in quick succession, followed by the disciples asking Jesus to explain the parable of the tares. Now, I can only speculate that since they didn't inquire about the parable of the mustard seed or the parable of the leaven, the disciples must have felt they understood them. So let's then for a moment jump to verse 36. Take a look at verse 36. And we're going to examine Yeshua's explanation of the tares parable before we look at the 
two parables that follow it. He begins by saying that the one who sows the good seed in the field is the Son of Man. Now here is yet another time that Son of Man can only refer to a specific and unique person and not just mean human being in a generic sense. Clearly it's referring to Daniel 7's Divine Son of Man. So once more Christ is pronouncing His own divine nature, whether anybody gets it or not. Notice that Yeshua has not only separated Himself from the crowds, He has also moved into a house, probably the one in which He's been residing in Capernaum, because He wants privacy with His disciples. Now notice as well the thing that the disciples focused upon in His parable. See. Matthew has them saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds, the parable of the tares. That is, in their description of it, they saw this parable as mainly about the weeds, not about the sower or the good seed or anything else, the weeds. So the disciples immediately see this parable as not about the righteous, but rather about the wicked, and then what happens to them. And so it follows that as Yeshua says, the Son of Man is the sower of the seeds, it is also He who will be the judge of those who are deemed wicked. Now the field that the seeds are sown in is the world, which means the entire earth. Sometimes in the Bible the term world can refer only to Gentiles or to a general anti-God attitude of people. In this case it means more something like the seeds are sown into the entire population of the earth, the Holy Land included. So it's everything. The good seed are the members of the Kingdom of Heaven while the weeds are the members of the kingdom of Satan. Therefore the one who sows the weeds into the field of the world is Satan. When the time comes for a collective harvest of the fields, says Yeshua, it will be at the end of the age. That is, the end of this present age, the one they and we today are still living in, or in Hebrew terms, it is the end of the Olam Hazeh. Now to be clear, what He means by that is that the harvest of this field, both those who are evil and those who are righteous, is the terminating act that marks the end of human history as we know it. Those who perform the harvest will be Heaven's angels. So Yeshua continues on by further illustrating that just as weeds are collected and burned up with fire, in other words they're destroyed during the harvest process, so it will be for the weed people, those who are not deemed members of the Kingdom of Heaven. They will be harvested by God's angels, but they will be destroyed. He continues with more explanation by saying that it is He, as the Son of Man, who will order the angels to begin the harvest of the weeds and all things in general that are evil, those things that result in humans choosing to sin. He adds to this something that I think the complete Jewish Bible has said exactly as Matthew meant it. He says, and all the people who are far from the Torah. Boy, let that sink in for a minute. I want you to pay attention to this. That is, among those deemed wicked will be those who have purposely distanced themselves from God's biblical Torah. The complete, rather, the King James Version says it this way all who do iniquity. The NAB says, and all evil doers. A number of other versions say those who commit lawlessness. I want to pause right here. 
for those who have followed Torah class for a while, this might be a familiar subject. For others, it might be new. Nonetheless, it's worth the retelling. I'm going to begin with the crux of the matter. What's lawlessness? What is it? I mean, does this mean being a criminal within one society, breaking the local law code, whatever it is? If so, does this mean violating the laws of any nation that one may live in, no matter what that law states? I mean, are, are we to assume that all laws and all societies are seen by God as righteous laws? See, the Greek word being translated as lawless is enomia. It means without law. It is self-evident. Christ cannot possibly be referring to breaking the law of any law code on earth. The Roman law code, for instance, as in his day. Because the world is full, was then, is now, of immoral laws. Now they differ from nation to nation. Thus lawlessness can only refer to the law code that mattered to Jews, that mattered to Christ. The one God gave to them, the law of Moses, or as Yeshua sometimes calls it, the Torah and the Prophets. God's not going to send someone to eternal destruction because they did 45 in a 35 mile per hour speed zone. Well, maybe not. He's also not going to send anyone to destruction because the local law requires one to bow down and worship the local deity. That was a common law, by the way, in that era. And today, with secularism, you know what that demands? That we worship no God at all. You going to obey that? See, it's common in America for laws that do not allow prayer in school. But your child prays anyway. Does this qualify your child as lawless? Of course not. See, this is something highlighted back in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said that not everyone who calls on his name will be recognized as being saved. Rather, he says, he will say to many, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is, you who slander or separate yourselves from the law of Moses, from Torah, will not be considered members of Christ's kingdom. These are the weeds. These are the tares of the parable were gathered up and destroyed at the end of the present age. And as he says, let those with ears hear. Moving on from Matthew 13, verse 42, or rather to it. Yeshua says that they, those excluded, from the kingdom of heaven, will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Fiery furnace, Gehenna, lake of fire. These are all terms meant to illustrate the total destruction that those who aren't saved are going to face. But even more, see, these particular terms are chosen to describe the hottest of fires known to people at that time. The hottest. See, these fires aren't like a cooking fire. They're, they're not even like the fire of the temple altar. The terrible heat of a fiery furnace is meant to indicate the fury and the vehemence of God's wrath upon all evildoers. There will be no humane executions. This is why it is said there's going to be wailing there's going to be gnashing of teeth. See, this expression means extreme pain, horrible mourning that can't be comforted. Only once this extinction level event of the wicked occurs, will the final victory of the overcomers in Christ become clear. Matthew 13, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, 
whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, in modern times, the members of the kingdom of heaven are usually said to be the church. So in the parable of the weeds, it is common within Christianity to claim that the seed seeds equal the church. In a certain sense, I think this is correct. However, the issue that we are forced to consider is, what is the church? See, it's widely taken for granted that it is widely inclusive of anyone who professes to be a Christian. It is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Well, this notion is immediately dispelled in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. I mean, to sort of rationalize this away, it's common especially among evangelical Christianity, to say that those who call on the Lord's name in those verses of Matthew 7 and other verses in the New Testament, that will be told by Christ, I don't know you, aren't really believers, they're pretenders. They're just pretending. Well, I would say they're not pretenders because pretenders are trying to deceive others into believing they're something they're not. Rather, this is referring to someone not who's pretending, but rather to the deceived who really do think they are saved in Christ. The deceived, or at the least, they think they are at peace with God so they can expect a happy life and a good eternity. They trust in some man-made doctrine or another. And their denomination that gives them a false sense of security because this doctrine is a, a pleasant fiction that's very easy to believe, something you want to believe. So among the weeds will be those who have convinced themselves they're saved. They see themselves as part of the church, but it's a man-made vision of the church to which they connect. It's a man-made version of the church that most folks picture when the word's uttered, and not truly of people who sincerely represent the extension of Yeshua's body and ministry. Well, Yeshua has not addressed every part of the parable of the tares. For instance, he has not really addressed what he said back in verses 27 to 30. Back there he said, The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where have the weeds come from? And he answered, An enemy has done this. And the servants asked him, Then do you want us to go and pull them up? And he said, No, because if you pull up the weed, you might uproot some of the weed at the same time. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers to collect the weeds first, tie them in bundles to be burned, but to gather the wheat into my barn. So, returning to my comments, that not everyone who claims to be part of the church and believes they are, actually are. Yeshua puts it in terms of the grain that comes from the good seed becoming all entangled with the weeds. The farmer's servants want to know if they should go out and pull up those weeds from the field, since it is known that an evil enemy put them there. The farmer says not to, because pulling up the weeds, the grain from those good seeds might get pulled up as well. What happens to the weeds when they're pulled up? They're burned up with fire. So the Lord wants no accidental, He wants no collateral damage to even one stalk of grain that came from that good seed. Not even one. He'll wait. Rather, the farmer says he's going to be patient. He's going to wait till harvest time, then pull them both up. And at that moment, 
At that moment, the weeds will be separated away and disposed of, the grain will be gathered in the farmer's barn for safekeeping. See, this is an important lesson for congregations to apprehend, and especially for ministers and for rabbis who lead them. Every congregation has its problem child. Sometimes the person that is a problem has more to do with quirks and, and flaws, even annoyances that bother people, rather than it being an issue of evil or of deception or something. At other times, the person is clearly behaving in words, or rather in ways that God's Word says he or she shouldn't. Or they disrupt the congregation. They want personal attention. Or at other times, they are an anti-leader. An anti-leader is a person who is not a good enough leader to assemble their own flock. So that person seeks instead to take over that which another has created and led. Satan is an anti-leader. He didn't create anything. He seeks to take over that which God has created. Human anti-leaders are in imitation of Satan, even if they don't realize it. It can be a difficult call for a congregation leader to know when to ask that individual to leave, or when to just try to figure out how to put up with it. That is, do we as congregation leaders identify the tares and then do the weeding ourselves? Or do we wait? and let the Lord do it, perhaps not even until the harvest, Judgment Day. See, in the seven letters to the congregation of Revelation chapters 1-3, through three, there are a couple of congregations that are actually admonished for allowing a few weeds to continue to thrive among them, instead of the leaders dealing with them severely, or even pulling them out. One occurs within the congregation of Thyatira, Revelation 2 verses 18 through 22. To the angel of the Messianic community of Thyatira write, Here is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished brass. I know what you're doing. I know your love and trust and service and perseverance. I know that you are doing more now than before. But <laughs> I got this against you. You continue to tolerate that Jezebel woman, the one who claims to be a prophet. But she's teaching, and in it she's deceiving my servants to commit sexual sin and eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to turn from her sin. She didn't want to repent of her immorality. So I'm throwing her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing them into great trouble unless they turn from the sins connected with what she does. So the issue of the weeds and the grain planted in the same field growing up together is not an easy one to resolve when it happens. But Jesus makes the overall meaning of the parable quite straightforward. One way or another, the weeds, the wicked, the excluded from the kingdom of heaven will be judged and destroyed. There's no escape for them. Let's back up now, please. Take a look at verse 31, and we're going to discuss perhaps one of the most famous of all parables, the parable of the mustard seed. Now this parable has some facets to it that aren't easily recognizable by Gentile Christians, and so this kind of complicates the unwinding of its, of its message. See, it begins with the standard opening for a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, a mustard seed. A man took this tiny mustard seed and put it in the field. And the gist of the short story is that even though the seed is super tiny, it eventually grows up into a huge plant as big as a tree. So big birds can build nests in it. 
Now, what the Jews of Yeshua's day would have focused on is quite different from what believers today typically focus on in this parable. See, the first thing a Jewish farmer from the first century would ask is, why in the world would a farmer intentionally put a mustard seed in his field? Why would he do that? See, there's a couple of reasons for this that raise red flags for Jews. First is this instruction from Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus 19.19, observe my regulations. Do not let your livestock mate with those of another, mate with those of another kind. Do not sow your field with two kinds of grains and don't wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of thread. A second in Torah, uh, second in Torah instruction uh, is like it. It says in Deuteronomy 22.9, you are not to sow two kinds of seed between the rows of vines. If you do, both the two harvested crops and the yield from the vines must be forfeited. So clearly it wouldn't be kosher, so to speak, for a farmer to intentionally throw a mustard seed into his grain field because it violates the law of Moses. See, the issue of the prohibition of mixed kinds has always played a large role in the Hebrew faith, the Hebrew religion. The Mishnah has an entire section called Keliim that deals with illicit mixtures and especially with the planting of seeds of different kinds into the same space. So in Yeshua's parable, this intentional throwing of a mustard seed into a field that was meant for grain Nobody planted mustard plants in a field because they were considered as pests. See, this wasn't something anybody would normally do. And further, as verse 32 explains, this tiny, this nearly invisible seed ironically grows into the largest of all herb plants. So large, it's tree-like such that birds can land on its branches and build nests upon it. And Christians have always looked at this and said, Oh, this is so wonderful! But in reality, to the Jewish farmer listening to Jesus, the mustard plant is an invasive species. The biggest of all weeds! It grows so large that it crowds out the grain crop, even throws shade over some of it, thereby not allowing enough sunlight to get through so that the grain plants can grow to their optimum. So how are we actually meant to take this since the Jews wouldn't have seen the subject of, of the matter of this parable as a good thing at all? they might have actually laughed at it a little bit. See, to arrive at the message, let's realize something I told you about parables in general. Don't get all caught up in the details. Because that will usually lead you down rabbit trails. Christian teachers have been caught in this self-made trap for centuries, so they had to resort to allegory to try to flesh out some details. Even as it pertains to the deciding the many different meetings they're able to come up with. See, the details of a parable are only there to embellish the story. They're the icing on the cake. They're there to create something so it can be remembered and retold. See, the next thing to recall is what we started today's lesson with. Whose kingdom is the earth? right now. Satan's. So the field in Christ's parable belongs to Satan. The field in the world is the world just as it was then and it is now. It represents the entire population of our planet. And then along comes a farmer who does something that other farm farmers typically would not do. He casts a seed, a mustard seed into the field that's different from all the other type of seed that's already been planted there. Well, this story jolts 
the Jews listening because instantly their minds go to kilayim, prohibited mixtures. But even that's not the point. What we have is God casting the seed of his kingdom. He's starting an invasion into the same field that belongs to Satan, where Satan's already cast his seed. The seed of God are the members of the kingdom of heaven. The invasive species, do you know that? You know you're an invasive species? Believers are invasive species on this earth. And as believers grow and mature, the kingdom of heaven is going to eventually squeeze out areas that the seed of Satan has been thriving in, even throw shade on other parts of Satan's crop, his wicked followers. It's going to stunt the growth of his evil kingdom. See, this parable is a statement of recognition of whom the current lessee of the field is, Satan. But the true owner of the field, God, has just dropped a tiny little time bomb into the field, a hardly noticeable one. And it's messing with Satan's plans, and it's only going to get worse for him. That is, as far as the wicked world is concerned, God planting his own seed onto the field, that's what's causing all the trouble and the chaos. And the world is aghast at it. God shouldn't be intervening in Satan's territory. It's just not kosher. But that's exactly what he's doing. The next parable is the shortest one yet. One verse. Verse 33 is the parable of the woman who takes some leaven, secretly adds it to a bushel of flour, until the entire batch, entire batch was full of leaven, so it rose. There's no getting around it that in the Bible, leaven is symbolic of sin. And yet, in this parable, we're told that the kingdom of heaven is comparable to leaven. So is this saying that the kingdom of heaven is the same as sin? Or that there is some relationship between sin and the kingdom of heaven? Not at all. Again, don't get distracted by the details of a parable. The details are not about any relationship between sin and leaven. Rather, it's that Everyone knows that when you add leaven to flour, the mixture rises. It expands. What's a little harder to come to grips with is that it, it is specifically said that it is a woman who performs this function in Yeshua's parable. If we assume that the one who added in the leaven was representative of God or the Son of Man, how do we square that? with the figure of the metaphor being that of a woman? Well, there's at least a couple ways to think about it. First of all, in the first century Jewish culture, bread making was considered as woman's work. It would not have made sense to listeners, may have even been offensive to them, to hear of a male adding leaven to flour and making bread that rises. But second, it may have been referring to Yeshua as the embodiment of wisdom. See, we've already encountered, encountered references to his nature of wisdom and to folks wanting to know if he might not even be the son of David, Solomon. Further, in Jewish thought and literature, wisdom is given female attributes. She and wisdom is always spoken of grammatically in the feminine gender. Now, I rather favor the first explanation over the second. I can't rule out either, though. 
But nonetheless, the point of the parable of the leaven connects with the parable of the mustard seed, in that they are both about growing and expansion. They both also include the idea of concealment. Concealment. That is, a mustard seed is nearly impossible to see, especially if it just falls onto soil. Good luck finding it. So it could be planted without anybody else even knowing. But as it matures, what was once nearly invisible grows into something formidable. Well, that's the end of concealment. The amount of leaven needed to leaven a batch of bread is also tiny and is usually in the form of a pinch of dough from a previously leavened batch. So the pinch is thrown in, it is nearly imperceptible. Once it's mixed in, no one would be able to see it or know it's there. And yet, pretty soon, the leaven starts to react with the flour and the batch perceptibly grows on account of it. So obviously leaven's been added. So the aim of the parables of the mustard seed and of the leaven is that the kingdom of heaven is like the growth of something that is at first very small, even intentionally hidden from view, but it eventually will expand into something great and visible and the concealment of it ends. It is almost magical the way it works. On the other hand, when what is concealed becomes revealed, then an opposition will rise against it. Now for those of you who aren't farmers or bread makers from the first century, then we need to give those people credit for at least acknowledging what they could see happening with their own eyes, even if they didn't understand the, the process behind it. I mean, we know today that the size of a seed has little to do with the ultimate size of a plant. But to the people 2,000 years ago, it was wondrous. Now, we scientifically understand the chemical and the organic reaction of yeast to flour. But for the ancients, it was a mystery without explanation. But it happened, and it happened the same way every time, so they did it. We could say that they had an unshakable faith in the improbable, in the invisible, in the unexplainable growth of a mustard seed and of leavened bread into something much larger. So to make an application for us, Christ followers, it is that we need to have an overcoming faith that the kingdom of heaven on earth, which is so relatively small compared to the kingdom of Satan, will one day surpass it because we've been promised that it will. As we look all around us today, we can't avoid being drawn into all the despair and worry and anxiety and death and war, the sad degradation and weakness of so many Christian and Jewish institutions. That makes it so very hard to see that God's mustard plant, the body of Yeshua believers, is continuing its growth. Ironically, it's the presence of all this chaos and hatred that reveals the growth of the kingdom of heaven on earth because this is Satan's ever-increasing violent reaction to it. 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13, And indeed, all who want to live a godly life united with the Messiah, Yeshua, will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. There it is. 
a reality that most of us wish wasn't the case is things are only going to get worse. Now, what's to be our reaction to the knowledge of this? See, the world sinks into despair when they see no hope in the things the world naturally hopes in material prosperity, human leadership, a false belief that mankind is inherently good. And of course, hope in these things can be fleeting and eventually it always lets us down. Always. As believers, we must react differently. See, we need to double down on our determination and our efforts to get out the message that the kingdom of heaven is near, even upon us, and that Yeshua is the Lord of that kingdom. See, our hope is the only hope that's certain to win out. But then there's this, John 9:4. As long as it's day, we must keep doing the work of the one who sent me. The night is coming when no one can work. So even in our hope, there is a day nearing when we will not be able to do work for the Kingdom by telling others of the good news. The telling of the Gospel has an expiration date. What this means for non-believers is that they will no longer have an opportunity to hear the message and repent. It means that at some point Known only to the Father, nearly all who do not accept Yeshua as their Savior will have their fates sealed in concrete. But for believers, it means we only need to hang in there a little bit longer. The harvest is just around the corner, the ever darkening world, this is the evidence of it. Satan's kingdom is about to be driven into extinction even though we can't understand with our human senses and our intellect how this can happen. Yet this is because God's takeover of the earth, the expansion of the Kingdom of Heaven, is far more spiritual than a physical process. Okay, we'll continue next time with the parable of the hidden treasure.